Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined, as always, by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, how are you? I'm doing well, Alex. I'm looking forward to my first NHL game at Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle. It's, uh, it's not fair that you stole my exact joke that I was hoping to make because <laughs> that, that is the thing that happened before we started taping. I'm going to use this at least eight times today. Okay, good. This is the best uh, thing that's ever happened. <laughs> before we get to number two in that eight-part series, uh, Tosh, you're also with us. You're one of our VC reporters focused on the early stage. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm fresh off an Extra Crunch Live and back in my closet. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> Because you record the show in your yes, closet. Yes, sorry, context. I record yeah. the show, it is week 17, and I'm still here. <laughs> it would be really great to get back in the office and our studio and, you know, have our stuff back. That'd be great. Yeah, well, actually, someone just pitched me the other day saying that they're trying to go back in July. And I'm like, what? You're going back to your office? Yeah. Not to open That's the a can of soon. worms. Yeah. Uh, well, we have a really, really busy show today because there was so much uh, going on. We had to cut about two-thirds of the stuff we wanted to talk about. But to keep things uh, thematic and interesting, what we've done is we've broken up some stories into companies that are raising funding that have been essentially damaged by COVID-19, and then people that are raising money who have been accelerated by COVID-19. So this is kind of like the both sides of the coin, the COVID bust and the COVID boom, which is a little bit gauche, but this is a business show, so we can ignore that and just dive in. And we're going to start off with a company we haven't mentioned in months, I don't think, Tosh. Yeah, so the famous turned infamous luggage startup Away raised new funding um, between $30 million and $40 million per Axios. If you guys haven't heard, the Away was kind of thrown into everyone's headlines when Zoe Schiffer of The Verge wrote a story back in December about kind of the toxic environment at the luggage company, which has kind of been like a very loved D2C startup by millennials, by all of us. So back then, the CEO, Steph Corey, left after like her Slack messages were were exposed. And, and now, you know, with travel, seeing new funding, seeing this post really obvious crisis, I was super shocked to one, have missed it, but then to see them raise cash. Yeah. Well, some notes about that. So uh, according to Premac, the round was structured as a convertible note at a lower cap than its last round. So Danny, help me out here. That means that effectively it raised money at a lower valuation, but didn't formally reprice its shares yet. That's right. So convertible notes are debt, right? And, and the beauty of debt in this con context is it doesn't lock in the price. So if the company can recover, it can sort of get a higher price. And on the downside, uh, if the company doesn't recover, whatever that next round of equity funding, it's going to convert and that could have a higher ownership. Okay, got it. And so we also know that the company went through uh, layoffs, furloughs, and a lot of other issues because effectively their revenue dropped by 90%. They did a medium post about this saying like, look, we're a travel startup and travel went to zero. And so our sales have dropped sh sharply. I'm kind of presuming that because they managed to raise money, the things are turning back around at least somewhat. I mean, they can't still be at, you know, negative 90%. So I, I, my question here is like, I, f I feel a lot of like the travel startups that are capitalizing on this moment after initially struggling have this pitch that they're going to be equipped for the future of travel. And I just can't imagine how a luggage startup is equipped. And I don't mean to be crass. Like, I just am genuinely confused on how... Uh, like a, something that has a physical product would would try and like repitch itself and be the future. The only parallel I can draw is like rent the runway, struggling and then raising like a surprising bit of capital. Um, but I feel like I have more faith in something that would reinvent the way we access clothing than like a very physical good. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I mean, 
Away became a bigger brand than I expected it to. So I want to point out that I have not been historically right about this company. Uh, it was more beloved than I thought it would be. Uh, I've owned suitcases. I've never thought about them because I'm inherently unfashionable and boring. But what I learned through the, the company is that you can build a really killer consumer brand in a part of the market that I wouldn't think was, was super huge. But that was predicated on, in this case, people flying a lot. Like we used to check our frequent fire sets. We used to know about who had the most points on which airline. And now we don't. And so to me, maybe back to your point about offices in July, Tosh, people are going to be getting back out there faster than we think. But to me, this, this is a bet on COVID getting better and therefore people being allowed by their own conscience out of the house more frequently. And given what we've seen in the last week of COVID data domestically, I'm not that bullish, but perhaps they're high margin goods. Perhaps they have multiple purchases. Maybe it makes a lot of sense. I, I, I don't have the numbers, you know, so it's hard to say, um, uh, Danny, what, what do you think about the economics of Away? I, I think the economics were always good, right? I mean, at some point, luggage is actually easy to create, or at least the luggage they were producing. So the margins were great. And I, I, most importantly, they had an amazing funnel on the marketing side, right? So they built out, you know, in truly kind of the thesis of these modern DTC brands, um, one of the best funnels in terms of using social advertising and word of mouth to drive conversions, right? So they had really low cost for marketing, really high margins on the actual physical goods, and that's a beautiful company. So I think the big question is, given all the employee trauma, has been, you know, what's been the turnover on that marketing team? Because that's really the magic and DNA of this company was their ability to produce a brand that converted at a really, really cheap cost. And I don't know if that's still the case. Hopefully the investors looked into it. You know, they put a couple of million bucks in. Hopefully they looked at the LinkedIn. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. feel like I feel like cult followings in like a COVID nineteen era and post COVID for like the next couple of years is going to be so fascinating to track and see. Like, I want to see what gets hyped. I think right now, like all I see that gets hyped are like email apps and 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 voice messaging apps. Yeah, I'm going to avoid numerous segues that I could take off that point about email apps and a Verge article that I read. <laughs> that was a review of Superhuman that was really good that everyone should read. I'll avoid oh that entirely yes. and just say that uh, as a final point, if we recall, uh, the CEO of Away um, publicly apologized after the Verge investigation and kind of stepped down. I was going to move into, I think, an executive chairman role. And then a couple of weeks later, she reversed that and came back to the company. And before this, I did check with the other person and he is still listed as a co-CEO on his LinkedIn. So even throughout this period of, uh, of change, they've managed to keep both of their kind of heads of state. And um, I think that bodes reasonably well. They didn't have a, a falling out and lose half of their CEO staff. So uh, going there's into this new, there's three. Yeah. yeah, I think Jen Rubio is also the co-founder and is a co-founder at least with Steph, there's like I think three people in charge at this company. Like, let's see what that's they always do. a great sign for leadership. If you get one more, it's a gang of four, and that worked out great in Chinese history. I a gang of four to me is a congressional reference to American politics. So you've gone one level deeper than my historical knowledge. But we're going to move ahead, and we're going to talk about Sonder. We'll, we'll also se segue to Sonder, except segues are dead. So unfortunately, I, we need a new word. Uh, but uh, Sonder, uh, for those who don't know, is is sort of a apartment. I would call it liquidity company. So similar to what WeWork did for offices, Sonder was doing for apartments. They would take out multi-year leases in trendy city neighborhoods and then release them back out to folks who are looking for either short-term rentals or any sort of corporate housing sort of model. And obviously the company got hit and whacked pretty bad in the recession. At the nadir of uh, COVID-19, Sonder's occupancy actually plunged 
from above 80% to into the 40s, which if you're familiar with anything in the real estate space, anything in the occupancy of uh, in the 40s is terrible. And they had thousands of underperforming properties. Hundreds of employees were laid off, almost a third of the staff. And so it was a surprise this week when we found out that it actually raised $170 million led by Fidelity Westcap Group and Innovia Capital at a $1.3 billion valuation, which is actually, believe it or not, a uptick from before. Which just goes to show you, I don't know what the math is here or how people are thinking about it, but this this just seems absolutely insane to me. Yeah, math does not exist this year. I have like officially confirmed. Unlike Away, I feel like I see such a clear path forward for Sonder because I think in the Forbes article, they said that their occupancy rate has returned to pre-pandemic levels of 80%. What? Wow. Who is staying here? I mean, they said it's temporary housing. I guess, more flexible leases and COVID-friendly amenities. But I don't know about you guys. I'm not rushing to to go to Tahoe for July 4th. And okay, but, but flip it around, though, right? Like, if you're going to go, if you have to go somewhere, let's just say, mm. presume, like, you, Tosh, have to go to Tahoe. You must go skiing. You can't not. You have to get out there. <laughs> what a life. Um, would you, yeah, I know, oh, that was the struggle. But would you rather go to a formal hotel and rent a hotel and be around that many people or possibly rent something through Sonder, per se, and uh, end up something that might be a little bit more amenable to staying free of people. That's the only thing that comes to mind. Also in business travel, et cetera. Maybe, maybe that's helping, but it's it's an impressive rebound. I, I only choose my my housing based on the sommelier's uh, reviews on sommelier.com. That might just be me and my lifestyle. But what I will say about Sonder is I, I do think, you know, this model has traditionally been about kind of the, the VIG, so to speak, right? So the, the goal here is you're buying these places cheap, you're reselling them, you put in premium amenities, it's a high quality experience, and you're getting a totally different customer, right? So that $3,000 one bedroom that goes for, you know, an annual lease, you're hoping for $4,000, you know, a month from a business traveler who's showing up for three months. Mm-hmm. And and to me, the challenge here is that I just can't believe that there's this, you know, gap in the market right now where there's a huge amount of corporate travel. I mean, at least for our company, we're not even allowed to travel. I mean, it's no. banned, right? We have a, we have a travel ban. And I, I, I imagine that it's similar for a lot of other companies, given the legal risks around COVID-19. So I just don't know who the customer is who's looking for temporary housing in cities. Okay. But I just realized a very important fact. Tosh is correct. They have returned to this high level of occupancy with several thousand fewer properties that were underperforming. Mm, so there's that means the they, new they've, ones. <laughs> they've offloaded the crappy ones. And then with the smaller supply, they've returned at those levels. So their revenue must be smaller than it used to be if they're at lower units, same occupancy. You can't have the same revenue from that base. So it doesn't bode exactly the well. That's exactly why its valuation went up, Alex. That, no, wait, no, that's, it's the... <laughs> No, this, remember, math is out of math is out of style right now. Okay? This whole this is, year, this is as a philosophy major. This is a great moment for you, in which numbers <laughs> no longer have any meaning whatsoever. We can talk semiotics all day. Look, bro, you talk a lot of shit about sommeliers for a guy who doesn't have carry from his last VC fund. <laughs> oh my god! Um, Unnecessary. No. I'm not going to be bullied today on the show. We are going to get through the news. That's what we are going to do. Now, for actual disclosure purposes, I do have carry. In my last VC fund, which is why I do not talk about CRV. And now you triggered it. Oh. You triggered it. I thought, oh, I see what you, I did there. You, you, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Okay. I see it. I see it. You massively right. complicated the legal lap, uh, notion of this show. All right. Um, well, Danny's inbox is going to be Danny's <laughs> inbox now. I have a question. Well, yeah. Um, are you guys like taking this and applying any of it to Airbnb or are we like, are we confused about Airbnb? What are we thinking? Alex, is the IPO, IPO happening this year? 
So it's a, it's a really good point. And the thing that I'll say is Airbnb is making noise about a return to form. They are talking about how certain segments of their business are better than before or returning to norm. And the CEO didn't rule out a 2020 IPO. And uh, I think it was a call with Bloomberg uh, last week or something like that. So, so there's the right noise coming out. I don't know if they're going to be ready this year, but certainly I don't think they're hitting the bottom as hard as they expected to. And they probably think the worst is behind them. The only thing I'll say is, COVID's getting worse in the U.S. And Airbnb is a U.S.-based business with probably a lot of their total revenue in the U.S. So I want to be optimistic for them because they've had a really crappy year and just, you know, I'm a human, I have emotions, but I'm hesitant to be too optimistic in the short term about that. Well, I think it's also important to point out, you know, Airbnb doesn't own its properties, right? It's just a marketplace. It's just a transaction volume business. Whereas I believe, I mean, I don't know how Sonder is literally corporately structured, but they they do take out the leases themselves. They own these properties or, or at least rent these properties themselves probably through a separate entity or whatever, but at least from a margin perspective, it makes a huge difference, right? They have the cash flow cost of actually maintaining these properties, even when they're not occupied, whereas Airbnb at least gets to say, look, there's just no transaction volume. There's just no revenue, but they're not taking any losses from that. Yeah, true. Airbnb said their variable costs are very, very, very variable. They can go up and down as they need to. But look, let's go from the the negative side of the coin, the, the companies that have struggled in the COVID era, even though they've raised more money paradoxically, and talk about some companies that are that are doing well. Speaking of which, one is called Hopin. Uh, I wrote about them this morning, actually. They just raised a $40 million Series A from IVP. And those collection of words should make you kind of sit up because IVP tends to invest a little bit later. Also, Series A's don't tend to be $40 million, even in the unicorn era. So what's going on? Well, uh, Hopin, as it turns out, does virtual conference tech. So if you need to host a conference virtually, like say if there's a global pandemic, their technology is going to be one option out there in the market. There are a few, but Hobbin seems to be doing rather well. They raised 5 million pounds or about six and a half million dollars in February of this year after a small seed round October of last year. The CEO told me effectively that they were growing very quickly, but also essentially break even for most of their life. So they've had a pretty efficient operation. And I mean, every single event is now virtual. So I'm not surprised that Hopin is is doing so well, but I can't recall the last $40 million series A that I've seen. So I, I'm so curious how fast their revenue growth is. Like Danny, if you were, if you were a betting man, how fast do you think they're growing? Well, I mean, we know their attendance is way up, you know, almost 10 X in two months. So if you're annualizing that, that's in a cra- crazy high number to me. I mean, look, obviously this is just a, an early bet in a space that the, the hope here is that in 10 years, virtual events is the core to everything in the conference business. And at least pre-coronavirus, conferences alone was a you know a hundred billion dollar plus industry. I mean, it's it's absolutely huge if you include yep. the hotels, the airlines, the tickets, the events planning, all the economy around this. I mean, cities like Orlando. Uh, we had the mayor of Orlando here at TechCrunch HQ a couple months ago, and it's like you know he was telling me how he brings an Atlanta's worth of tourism to Orlando every single day, right? Like there's just a, a scale to these sorts of events. So I mean, if if Hopin, or what I would prefer to call it is hopin for a lot of these poor conference businesses when they're looking at their business metrics. Hopin is going to be the the choice for them to to move forward. And if they can capture some of those tens of millions of people who go to conferences every year, it's an amazing business. So so I, I agree with all that. I also thought I was hopin, but then I asked it's hopin. And also not to be pedantic, but it's Nader, not Nadir, uh, from five minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> Can I can I chime in here? Um, yeah. I'm also a little bit more excited than a, about a 40 million Series A when I saw that their marketing costs are around zero because yeah. I feel like with so many early stage companies and seeds companies, they're um, like so much of their capital goes toward that. So I'm like, where is this 40 million going to go? I'm happy that it won't be just towards Facebook ads. 
Well, that, that's what they said. They can't really advertise that way. They can't really go out there and like buy a bunch of Facebook ads because the people who run conferences aren't going to be like, oh, I saw a Facebook ad. I'm going to pivot my entire conference business over to this direction. And mostly what they're doing is just serving existing demand by keeping the number of customers that they serve relatively modest because they have to scale people with customers. And the way the CEO explained this to me, he was like, look, if you have CRM software for your business and it goes down for a couple of minutes, it's not the end of the world. Like if mm -hmm. you don't have Salesforce for three minutes, everyone could go make a coffee and sit back down. But if you have a conference with a thousand, two thousand, five thousand people, three minutes, you could lose half your audience. People might not come back. It can essentially ruin your event. And so it's a much more, my impression was, and which is much more hands-on kind of operation. So they need to add a lot of staff and they're hoping to go from 60 currently people to 200 by the end of the year. And they started with eight. Wow. So it's been, it's, yeah, th this is one of those companies that's just blowing up and uh, keeping this properly vague. I was speaking to a different VC later on and we were talking about companies that were doing very well. And he said, you know, firms that are doing the best have actually the, the most access to capital they've ever seen. And I mentioned the hop and round. He goes, oh yeah, exactly like that. So people have seen this in the VC community and seen how fast it's growing. And IVP won, which I think is why it was a $40 million check. It's probably what it took to get to get the lead slot. So an interesting company. I hope they I hope they don't screw it up because they have so much cash now. Uh, it's going to be exciting. I wonder if like they have to be competitive with other virtual events companies or if they can just be good. I don't know if that question makes sense, but like, can they just because they have money, they're going to win or do they have to like provide like flashy new things? Do they, they talk at all about like how they're better than X, Y and Z for virtual events businesses? No, we didn't really talk about competitors much because my impression was there was so much more demand in the market for this sort of thing. There's going to be plenty of space for everyone in the short term. Like the, as Danny said, the TAM for events is enormous and the need to bring all those events online kind of en masse is going to create so much market. To, to, to sell into. And also, I don't see a reason why this has to be a, a one winner market. I can see Eventbrite's online thing. And I think there's a company called T-O-T-E-E-O-H maybe that's doing similar things. Why can't they all win? There's so many events. There's so many different ways to do events. But listen, I don't want to believe this point. We still have one more positive round to get to, which is all about not paying people, which I approve of. So Tosh, tell us what's up. Yeah. So do not pay, which kind of describes itself as like a robot robot lawyer raised 12 million at an 80 million valuation and think of it as this platform that would help you argue when you want to cancel your gym membership but, but then 24-hour fitness still ends up charging you anyways and you're stuck on the line with them do not pay this is a true story for me if you couldn't tell <laughs> but um, do not pay kind of is on the line for you and does kind of the annoying, very human, previously human oriented work of fighting the system. And with all of us canceling our in-person shit, I think it's a good time for it to raise. I think it's a great sign. I mean, look, uh, let's say you're at the nadir of a relationship. And I, I will point out that I did look on Miriam Webster, which both recognizes nadir and nader as acceptable <laughs> oh, yeah. pronunciations. Google led me astray. <laughs> so for some people, let's say you're wrong and you don't want to pay one of your colleagues, you could potentially hire do not pay to fire them so that you don't have to. But what I think is interesting is I, I've looked at a bunch of these companies over the years. I, I'm recalling one a couple of years ago that I actually used first time around at TechCrunch. And they were like, oh, we can cancel a flight. And I was having a huge issue with Cathay Airlines. And I was like, well, cancel my Cathay flight and I'll write up a story in TechCrunch. And they did and they were successful. But they eventually went out of business because it's really, really hard given how custom and how individual each of these issues is to find a way to create scalability in these businesses. So I'll be curious. I mean, the, the valuation was quite ambitious. It also comes from a growth fund, which has an early stage fund, CO2 Management. 
And so I'll be curious to see if they're able to scale up each of these individual, you know, sort of claims, you know, can they kind of come figure out robocallers on a scalable way? Can they fight on subscription fees on a scalable way? Because if they have to actually have people go on the line and try to call on, on your behalf, it's tough. It's a tough business. So what you're saying is that it's kind of hard to have like assumed business in this in this company? Like you can't assume that there's going to be like all these issues from time to time. Is that like the is that what you were kind of saying, Danny? Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, the range of ways that society completely Fs you over um, <laughs> is is so much like, you know, whether it's it's, uh, you know, the subscription that didn't tell you that they were going to renew and then puts a $200 check on your Amex. Whether it's your go to hospital billing, I mean, you know, uh, oh billing management is you know a multi-billion-dollar business in the United States. Which for those outside of the United States with sane healthcare systems in the U.S., we have the system in which you don't know what you're going to pay until you leave, and mm-hmm. what you might pay is anywhere between zero and a million dollars. Or if you have coronavirus, <laughs> it could be as much as two million dollars some days. And so I think one of the challenges here is, is like many of these problems, it's very heterogeneous. There's a lot of different challenges, and they're very, very nuanced. And so, yes, okay, this cable bill is slightly off, but this other person has a slightly different problem with their cable bill. And in both cases, you have to have someone who actually calls, threatens, and sues, and just not scalable. Yeah, in the article that I was discussing this this new round, the company said we have to find things that have I think it's like twenty five million people that had the problem. That way, we know we're going to build something that is mm, into okay. a large enough audience to to demand. But my my thought is, with this amount of money, they're going to have more engineers, uh, more intelligent engineering work being done. I wonder if they can lower that down and make more and more niche bots as they fill the market with things, uh, tools to fight back with. And that might make things a bit more interesting down the road. But what's interesting to me is they started with parking tickets, if I recall. Their original market was to be a robot lawyer to just handle parking tickets. So every time you got a parking ticket, you can contest it at court. And I'm, I'm doing a quick Google search, but they supposedly disputed hundreds of thousands of parking tickets on behalf of their users. So it's interesting to see them scale out to other areas. The question is, is whether they're as you know, kind of legally hackable as some of these other you know, markets that they were in before. Well, if there's one one part of the world that is probably ready to fall to some tech disruption, I think like the archaic legal system is going to be one of them. It's not designed to, to go under assault from from bots. It's designed to annoy people. Uh, but this company didn't raise money for a long time. It's been around forever. Then it raises $12 million and an $80 million valuation, which is a bit of a surprise. And so I, I'm curious if our read is that COVID gave this company such a boost in growth and demand for its services that then it became attractive to VCs suddenly and allowed it to raise this relatively interesting round from Koji's early stage fund, which is just, it, none of it really lines up with my knowledge of like company timelines and such. You know, it feels out of the box. I My bet is that it's opportunistic now and give it a couple months and it's not going to be necessary if they, you know, grow faster than they can manage. Well, I think it's also been around a long time, right? It's been four years. So actually, I mean, I, I think an 80 million valuation is totally spot on. I mean, if they're, they're getting good growth a couple of years into the business, they have a revenue model makes total sense to me. I mean, look, I don't know if just because Co2 is kind of on the, from the hedge fund world, but you know, financing legal lawsuits is like a growth area, both for the hedge fund world and for a bunch of startups. I've seen, I think, at least two or three fundings of startups that fund lawsuits, you know, and, and lawsuit financing is one of these, again, in America, it's like a totally great system where you can finance other people's to sue on other people's behalf. You know, they're sort of taking advantage of that opportunity. 
that taking advantage of that opportunity is a very polite way of phrasing that. I, I would pick a different one, but I would get bleeped by the powers that be. So we're gonna we're gonna pause this. But if we're gonna talk about suing people who pissed you off, Robinhood's a great follow-up example because Robinhood, with multiple service outages and mucho threats on online about people who want to sue them, it now has a new uh, approach to trying to create reliability on its platform. And Alex, I think you're gonna tell us a little bit more about that. Reliability isn't quite the word I would shoot for. More like um, to create a safer Robinhood, I think. You guys are both both familiar with the Wall Street Bets subreddit, I presume. I'm not. Oh, okay, cool. So uh, Wall Street Bets is the place where you go if you like to trade irresponsibly on platforms like Robinhood. <laughs> and uh, the way you win the subreddit is to lose the most money the fastest. And so if you lose like 400K and you're down like 98.8%, people will in a very oddly warm way, make fun of you and call you rude names. And so it's a place- It's like investment porn, like mistake porn. <laughs> just as there is a Reddit for not drinking, and there's also a Reddit for alcoholics who are leaning into their alcoholism, this is people who are leaning into their trading issues. <laughs> Anyways, I bring all that up because it, it just goes to show how much of a culture there is at Robinhood around, uh, among Robinhood's user base, I should say, around uh, taking on maybe more risk than people used to when it comes to personal accounts and trading. And mostly that goes fine, I think. There's been some stories about people hacking Robinhood to get more leverage and all this. But recently there was a an honest tragedy of a story. Uh, a kid was trading options, best as I can tell, and saw a negative number in his account that terrified him and he committed suicide. It seems that the number was more of a mid-trade UI quirk and that the other half of his option play hadn't quite solidified yet, so he actually wasn't down $730,000, but it did bring to the four questions of, are there enough guardrails uh, at Robinhood? And um, the company has made some noise about changing things uh, and maybe making it a little bit harder for people to access uh, certain trading products. And um, yeah, it feels a little late. I, th I think, I, I, th I think it's an, uh, you know, obviously a very sad story for the individual. I, I think it's a huge challenge for the industry in general. I mean, you know, the last 10, 15 years, the SEC and a bunch of other regulatory orgs have gone from a model of saying, look, you have to be an accredited investor in order to invest in all weird esoteric alternatives like venture yep. capital, hedge funds and elsewhere. And, you know, in the old world, if I recall correctly, accredited investor meant you had to make more than a quarter million a year and have two million in liquid assets. Right. Not so, including like, your house. Yeah. Not including your house. And uh, so liquid, liquid assets. And, you know, those rules are mostly gone, right? So we have crowdfunding for startups available. You can mostly get into a lot of these alternatives if people will actually take your money. And so now you can, with a click of a button, do very sophisticated options trading. And the reality is, is people don't necessarily know what they're doing. Like options trading is is not a simple science. And, and sometimes the corner cases can be quite complex, even for those who are experienced doing this. And so I think, you know, the question is, you know, do you want to democratize finance? Do you want to give everyone the opportunity to do esoteric models? Because some people will make money with the downside being that some people are going to really mess it up and not realize that they can lose, you know, 500x their money because they don't understand how the bet that they're making uh, plays out. And also, I mean, in this example, it wasn't even that the user necessarily screwed up. So it to me, the question becomes more like who who is it's like similar to like when a self-driving car injure someone who is to blame and how do they take ownership of it before it happens before someone dies from it and it's like i mean it's just we could talk about ethics forever but d democratizing access can bring in so much more emotion than we thought yeah yeah no i i feel all this i mean on one hand i i still have a a small shard of my libertarian streak i had been in my teens and so i'm always sympathetic to giving people more access to tools that might allow themselves to, to lever up the ladder a little bit 
Um, but also, as I get older, I get increasingly concerned about what people do with stuff. And in this case, I think we've seen the answer to that. This raises a business case that I'm that I that I've been thinking a lot about. And Robinhood makes money in a number of ways. It has a subscription product. It makes some money off cash that you hold. There's various ways that it generates revenue. One of the major ways that it does is by what's called kind of selling order flow, essentially routing customer orders through different exchanges and different houses. And then they get paid, you know, 20 cents a trade, 50 cents a trade, somewhere in there. And that generates a lot of revenue. People will execute lots of trades. I was going through Robinhood's filings on the back, I should say, of a great report by uh, The Block, which is uh, usually a crypto focused um, website. In this case, Robinhood does trade crypto as well. So they're on the hunt. And if you parse through their 606 and 607 filings, you'll see that the bulk of their money that they get from this payment for order flow comes from options. And so, you know, if Robinhood pulls back really hard on who gets access to certain exotic trades, which might be the safest thing, there is a tension there because it will actually possibly harm its revenue growth and its business quality. And that's what I I tried to write about this. I don't know how well of a balance I hit, but the the goal was to point out that they're, they're going to do stuff and how far they go will be to their own to their own detriment. So it's an interesting business case. And, you know, I'm going to not be negative and rude towards them until I see what they do, and then we'll judge them. But it's it's a weird moment to see. And it goes to show also, I think, how big Robin has become and how important to like the the financial fabric of uh, of younger people. I, I hope it's a lesson for any seed or early stage company that is riding off of the Robin Hood success and love amid Silicon Valley. Like, I hope that they're starting to think about these issues earlier than Robin Hood did. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, so two of the three, three two of the, the English, I can speak it. It's called Nadir. Two Alex. of the three. Yeah. <laughs> that was the nadir of my, my speech for the day. Uh, two of the, <laughs> this show. Oh, you ever like leave equity feeling that you're dumber than you are? I do sometimes. <laughs> like, did we talk at all? Teach one person one thing? <laughs> Two of the three things that they are doing are obvious things, educational resources and changes to the UI. So you don't see perhaps a mid trade number that isn't actually what happened to your account. hundred percent do those now should have been done before, but they're a growing company. They get a small pass because they're doing lots of things. It's the eligibility thing that I'm, that I'm going to focus on the most in the next couple of weeks. So uh, if you are a Robinhood trader and you uh, and you do run into some new restrictions, we are equitypod at techcrunch.com. We'd love to hear from you uh, about all of that. But sadly, uh, my dear friends, this is when we have to stop. We have, to run, we have to stop talking now for a week. It's sad. I'm going to miss you both. That's it? It's over 30 minutes. We're cutting ourselves off. That's the new, that's the new limit. So on that note, Danny, thank you very much for being here. Tosh, as always, a real pleasure. And uh, we'll be back in seven days, everybody. Hang tight. Hang tight.